fun fact. For a few years of my professional career, I supplemented my income by doing freelance movie reviews. It was only for some local papers, and the income was never that great, but it always covered the cost of the ticket and actually helped me buy some of the books I'm now using for this very podcast. But during that time, I came to a realization. And that realization was, most of the time, sequels are nowhere near as good as the original. Or, to put it into cinematic terms, most sequels are Temple of Doom, not Empire Strikes Back. The challenge of keeping what works from the original, without simply retreading, while simultaneously amping up the challenge and breaking original ground, is a very tough needle to thread. I bring this up because in the summer of 1885, General George Crook must have felt like he was living a sequel. It was just two years earlier that he had marched down into Mexico after Renegade Apache, confidently telling those with him that he would capture every last single one of them inside of 40 days. Yet here he was now, on the border between the U.S. and Mexico, plotting about how to best bring a group of renegade Chiricahua Apache to heel. But things were harder this time. The Apache were divided and not to be found in one group, Mexico would prove less accommodating, and the political pressure was mounting. And this time there would be no lightning 40-day campaign that awed all his enemies. This time it would be a slow burn that would last the entire summer and beyond. Yep, there's no doubt about it. Compared to the original, this sequel was going to bomb. The one thing it did have going for it was the antagonist. The always wily and unpredictable Geronimo. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 104 The Mexican Campaign, Round 2. Welcome back, everyone. I want to start today with a minor correction that comes from my own dad, of all people. While scrounging up an introduction for the last episode, I did about five minutes of research on the history of baseball so I could shoehorn some stuff in. And as far as intros go, it was a little clunky, but I was on something of a deadline. The result being that I mentioned that Americans thought that baseball was invented in Coopersville, New York, instead of the correct Cooperstown, New York. My dad, who played baseball in school, made sure to let me know that I had flubbed that particular fact. Because, yeah, of course it's Cooperstown, not Coopersville. I swear I actually knew that, but it was a random brain fail on my part. Anyway, thanks, Dad, and thanks as always for listening, and... I'll get you something nice for Christmas. Okay, back on track. Last week, we left off with four distinct groups of Chiricahua Apache that had fled from the reservation, eventually making it to Mexico. But even then, it's not like they could breathe a sigh of relief. After all, it was only two years earlier that they were in this exact same position, and they all had very clear memories of how Crook, Natan Lupin, the wolf leader, had tracked them down using his Apache scouts and strong-armed them into returning to the reservation. 
He had done it once before, and it was more than likely that he would do it again. And indeed, Crook was preparing to do just that. As we talked about at the end of last week, after learning about the breakout, though in the early stages he still didn't know about the May 15th telegram that Captain Francis Pierce down at San Carlos had failed to send to him, he had moved his office to Fort Bayard to be near the present-day Santa Clara, New Mexico, in order to prepare for this newest Mexican campaign. Being a military man, Crook naturally let his superiors know of his predicament, and he painted the situation as a prolonged one that wouldn't have any quick fixes. Crook wrote, quote, The country is very much alarmed, and the most radical measures must be taken to suppress the trouble which, however, will be a matter of great difficulty. End quote. So, no inside of 40 days message going on here. Crook also took this opportunity to pass the blame for this breakout on the power-sharing agreement between the Interior and War Departments when it came to Apache affairs in Arizona. He also brought up the same thing we talked about two episodes ago, that he had offered to resign and step away from these reservation matters. Then he made a bold suggestion. Get rid of this stupid dual-control agreement and just get the Interior Department out of his way. Crook wrote that he would stay if he were, quote, given entire control of the reservation, the same hand that feeds should punish. Dual control or anything approaching it must be carefully avoided, end quote. We'll get into how that suggestion was received in another episode, but in the meantime, Crook asked for and received permission to both recruit 200 more Apache scouts and to send them into Mexico after the renegades. And if he was going to send men into Mexico, Crook wanted men he could trust explicitly, and that meant recalling Captain Emmett Crawford. Crook relied heavily on trusted subordinates, so naturally he sent for the man that had run military affairs at San Carlos so ably. So, despite the fact that he had only left at the end of March, on June 6, 1885, Crawford reported to Crook at Deming, New Mexico. Now, I don't have much in the way of Crawford's perspective on events, but I have to imagine him sighing loudly and saying something like, I was gone for five minutes, what happened? We'll get to Crawford and his campaign in just a second, but I want to stay with Crook for a couple more minutes. Because not only was he concerned about recapturing all the Chiricahua that had broken out, but he also had to find a way to limit what harm they could do to civilians living in Arizona. As I mentioned last episode, the press was already having a field day raking him across the coals for his perceived failure. Letters and protests from civilians were being sent to Washington, including up to President Grover Cleveland about what they'd felt was a state of terror all around them. One writer, a rancher near the Patagonia Mountains, wrote the following hyperbolic and hysterical account, quote, we are surrounded by Apaches. We have many women and small children with us. Must we who build up republics and pave the way for civilization be shot down, butchered, tortured, and robbed by the marauding red devils who are now devastating our beautiful land? The Indians are within 10 miles of this place with not a soldier in pursuit. End quote. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney points out that as a husband and a father, this man's fears were real, 
but his assessment of the situation was more based in paranoia than actual facts. The Apache had, in fact, not come within 40 miles of his place, and the Army's Fort Huachuca was within 50 miles of his ranch. But this man may have not found that fact comforting because he asked specifically for the return of the 3rd Cavalry, which had been transferred to Texas, to replace the 10th Cavalry then stationed in Arizona. And why, you ask, did he ask for this swap? Well, because this rancher was the typical product of the 19th century, and he dismissed the 10th Cavalry, made up as it was of black soldiers, as, quote, a horde of cowardly Negroes, end quote. I haven't yet touched on the experience of the Buffalo Soldiers in the Southwest. It's on my list of things to get to. But I can assure you that this guy is just plain wrong, and they were as equal to the task as any of their white counterparts. But fighting against perceptions is actually an incredibly hard task, and it doesn't matter what the facts are. This was something Crook was learning firsthand. Still, he had made a few moves to try and mollify his critics, especially those who had said that he was relying too much on Apache scouts, too little on actual soldiers, and was leaving civilians defenseless. As I mentioned last episode, he set up a line of troops, 11 cavalry companies and 2 infantry companies, to cover all the usual Apache border-crossing spots and any water sources close to Mexico. He then organized parts of that 10th cavalry to be behind this line, essentially between the border and the closest railroad lines, just in case any Apache managed to slip past the border guard. Then a third line of men were stationed along the railroad that could be deployed close to the border if needed. Finally, Crook could call upon the garrisons that were still between the railroad and the reservation if things got really serious. In all reality, though, these postings were a just-in-case scenario. Because the Apache down in Mexico didn't really want to come back into the U.S., they had fled to Mexico for a reason— they weren't looking to pick a fight, though as I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, they were certainly expecting one. Though, as we'll see, Geronimo biographer Robert M. Udley points out that they really didn't do anything to prepare for when Crook's troops eventually did finally find them. The four Chiricahua Apache groups spread themselves in different directions in the Sierra Madres. If we keep our eye on Geronimo, we find him and Mongus passing through Casas Grandes before getting spooked again and heading to their old haunt at Bugaseca. This is the same spot where Crook scouts had surprised Chihuahua and his people back in May 1883, which we talked about in episode 97. Just for the record, Chihuahua and Naiche are moving around too, often joining forces and splitting off from each other over and over again. This happens way too many times to keep mentioning, but just so you know, at times, Naiche will even leave Chihuahua and come over to Geronimo's camp. But camping at all the old places was probably not the best idea because Chato knew Geronimo and the others would most likely head there. He knew exactly how to get there, and he was now playing for the other team. On June 11th, 1885, so roughly two days after Naiche entered Mexico, Captain Crawford entered the country with 92 scouts and a troop of the 1st Cavalry. At the head of them all was Chato, who had been entrusted with making sure this campaign came to a successful conclusion. This group moved swiftly, 
often going for 16-hour marches in 120-degree weather, stopping only for a single break during the day and to sleep. For the first week, the only major incident came when a few Mexicans shot at some straggling scouts, killing at least one of them. And this caused, according to Lieutenant Britton Davis, between 30 and 40 scouts to instantly get ready for battle and prepare to march to the nearest town and kill any Mexicans they could find. Chato, Crawford, and others were eventually able to calm them down, but the white mountain Apache scouts were suddenly in favor of returning to Arizona like right now. According to Sweeney, however, the Chiricahua scouts, who were well used to sudden ambushes, took the killings in stride. On June 22nd, so 11 days after entering Mexico, Chato and his scouts finally hit the jackpot. They found a trail of a small group of Apache that had raided the ranches near the Mexican town of Oputo. Getting permission from Crawford, Chato took 30 scouts with him to go ahead of the main party and follow this trail to the enemy camp. Despite heavy rains, by the next day they found their quarry on a rocky spur of the Sierra Madres. And this was the camp of Chihuahua. Chato and the men with him managed to flank the Apache camp, opening fire and causing all sorts of confusion and disorder. The women and children were ushered into a nearby cave for safety, and the men retreated while trying to draw the scouts away from the camp. However, Chato didn't take the bait, opting instead to take the women and children into custody. He soon found that Chihuahua's entire family was here, so he devised another plan. He released one of the women to send an offer to Chihuahua, and that offer was he could either kill Geronimo or he could surrender right now. Both those options were actually pretty tantalizing to Chihuahua. We already saw last week that he had been ready to drop Geronimo right where he stood, and he had originally wanted to go back onto the reservation. However, Chato's gambit actually had the opposite effect of what he desired, because in a crude phrase, Chihuahua just sort of lost it. He blamed Geronimo and now Chato equally for all his misfortune and vowed to exact vengeance on the turncoat who now dared lead scouts against him. And from what I've read, Chihuahua was now more than a little unstable, and he would later tell Crook that it was like demons had a stronghold on his mind during this time. Still, there was no denying that Chato had struck a huge victory, raiding Chihuahua's camp and taking so many captives. He returned to Crawford in high spirits, and the prisoners were sent back to Fort Bowie in Arizona for safekeeping. I want to now move off from Crawford, Davis, Chato, and those scouts, and move to another offensive push that was happening. Way back on June 9th, so the same day that Nietzsche had been spotted in the Mule Mountains and Crook wrote to his superiors that he needed more scouts, Captain Charles Gatewood, the head of Fort Apache, had been sent back up to the San Carlos Reservation to recruit those new scouts. A week later, on June 16th, Gatewood left Fort Apache with 75 scouts. However, Crook sent him to the Gila River Valley in New Mexico, having heard rumors of some Apache warriors still roaming that area. Unfortunately, the general's news was woefully out of date, and all that happened is that Gatewood and his scouts spent two weeks running around New Mexico with nothing to show for it. Eventually, they were ordered down to Fort Bowie because the scouts were needed for the second push into Mexico that I just alluded to. 
Here they were put under the command of Captain Wirt Davis, the officer chosen to lead this second push. A Virginian by birth, he had actually run away to St. Louis at the start of the Civil War to join the cavalry, the Union Cavalry. He had been fighting Indians ever since the end of the war, having fought on the plains and was now thought of as one of the best leaders in the 4th Cavalry. He had a reputation for hard drinking, though he abstained while on campaign, and superb marksmanship with a pistol. One man commented that Davis could keep a tin can jumping in front of him with his revolver. Plus, his first name is Wirt, which is now on my list of favorite names I've encountered during this podcast. And I apologize for introducing another army officer named Davis when we've already been talking about Lieutenant Britton Davis for what seems like eons now, but I'm going to do my best to keep them separated. As Captain Davis, not Lieutenant Davis, and his company of 102 scouts, wearing white headbands to distinguish themselves from Crawford's scouts who wore red headbands, were heading out. They stopped for a few last words with Crook. The general told the scouts, quote, Geronimo is killing white women and children. If you capture these wild Chiricahua, then all these American people will help you at San Carlos, and the ones who live far off will help you also, end quote. To this, one scout sergeant in particular responded, quote, If I see any of them, I will not let them get away, end quote. This was Sergeant Bylas the nephew of Eastern White Mountain Chief Bylas, who had been killed by Victorio five years earlier, and we mentioned that back in episode 72. So yeah, the Apache Wars are just pitting everyone against each other. Alright, on July 7th, Captain Davis and his company started their march into Mexico, mainly following the trail made by Crawford, Chato, and Lieutenant Davis. And that's when fate handed them a very nice gift. On July 20th, a mail rider out of Moctezuma, a Sonoran town roughly 50 miles south of Agua Prieta, rode into Davis's camp with the news that he knew the spot where the Apache were holed up. It turns out that Geronimo, Mongus, and Nightshay had led some raiding into Sonora, as they were wont to do, which had drawn the attention of the local military, which put enough pressure on the Apache to cause them to flee in a very particular direction. Captain Davis, of course, leapt at this intelligence and followed in that indicated direction. The very next night, Mexican civilians stumbled into their camp saying that they had spotted a trail heading into some nearby mountains, a rugged area known to be a favorite camping spot of both the Chaconans and the Nednis. Davis sent Sergeant Bylas ahead with a small force to scout out this latest intelligence and report back. Long story short, too late, I know, Bylas did spot the camp, but by the time he sent word back and the rest of the army showed up, Geronimo was long gone. He had possibly been warned by an old crippled Apache woman who had used her power to divine that if they'd stayed one more night, it would have meant trouble. Davis's scouts, not to be outdone, requested their own supernatural aid, with one man saying that he would hold a ceremony to consult his own power. This man claimed he could see all the movements of Geronimo and his followers, including that they were heading once again to Bucaseca. Bylas was sent out again, and eventually he, 86 scouts, and two white officers were able to not only find, 
but surround Geronimo's position on August 7th, 1885. But the wily renegade had some of the best luck in history, because as the scouts were ever so slowly inching forward to tighten the noose, a mule that had been tied up to a tree got spooked and started to bray loudly. The jig was up, so Byblis gave the order to start firing. There is conflicting information about the casualties. Some of the first reports erroneously listed Nana and Geronimo's son Chapo among the dead, but it appears only two women and one boy were killed. And at the beginning of the attack, multiple scouts spy Geronimo, pick up his young son, and start to run away as fast as he could. This made him an instant target, and multiple scouts fired at him. It's actually still up for a debate whether anyone hit him or not, but what did happen is Geronimo dropped his son, and only then was able to make his escape. For all the parents out there, yes, I said that Geronimo abandoned his small child to save his own hide. After the battle, a total of 15 women and children were captured. And these weren't just random NPCs either. Among the captives were three of Geronimo's wives and five of his children. Also taken was Wera, the moonshining master who was Mangus's wife and one of the leading voices behind the most recent breakout. And this assault scattered Geronimo and Mongus's forces. Geronimo, Nana, and about 40 followers fled southeast toward the state of Chihuahua, while Mongus and a small party headed to the same secluded spot that Hua had retreated to following his defeat at the hand of Mexicans in January 1883. And we talked about that back in episode 96. And this is where Mongus kind of falls out of view for a while. He's never going to link up with Geronimo or any other leading Chiricahua until after their eventual surrender. So the surprise attack on Geronimo's camp means the scouts were able to take a major piece off the board for the moment. With their new prisoners in tow and the news that they had engaged Geronimo and put him to flight, the scouting party returned to base camp. Here they were unexpectedly greeted by Captain Crawford and Chato who temporarily joined Captain Davis's forces while on their own trail to hunt down Chihuahua. Upon learning who exactly it was that the scouts had captured, Crawford took custody of Davis's prisoners. Then he had two of Geronimo's wives brought to a tent, where he, Chato, and interpreter Mickey Free peppered the frightened women with questions about the Chiricahua's whereabouts and plans. The prisoners were able to say truthfully that Nietzsche and his followers were somewhere on the western slopes of the Sierra Madres, but they didn't have a clue where the now frothing at the mouth Chihuahua was. As for Geronimo, they genuinely didn't know where he had gone following their capture and what, if any, immediate plans he had. Here we get to another black spot on Crawford's mostly glowing record, as at one point he became enraged at their continual insistences that they didn't know anything else about Geronimo. He actually whipped out his revolver and threatened to shoot the women unless they gave him some useful information. And the two women, literally on the verge of tears, insisted that they didn't know anything. Finally, Chato and Mickey Free had to calm Crawford down and vouch for the women's honesty. Now, this whole incident is very atypical for Crawford, who was generally known for being able to keep a level head. 
but perhaps his time at San Carlos in dealing with both the Apache and the Indian agent had worn down any restraint he once had. Or, as Sweeney notes, perhaps this shows what two months of campaigning in the hot Mexican desert had done to him. Crook needed results, but so far Crawford and Davis could point to token victories only. From here, both Captain Crawford and Captain Davis sent dispatches to Crook, updating him on these turns of events and also to send some of their prisoners up to Arizona. Crawford would also send most of the cavalrymen with him to ostensibly guard these dispatches and prisoners, but also because he found them pretty unhelpful in the mountainous pass they were now treading to hunt their quarry. After this, Crawford and Davis split ways, with Crawford electing to follow Geronimo's trail and Davis heading toward the western side of the Sierra Madres to see if he couldn't find and capture Nightshade and Chihuahua. Now, just a word about these Apache prisoners. Since the beginning of this campaign, these prisoners had been sent to Fort Bowie to be held, including some of the scouts who just could not stop themselves from drinking Tiswin. Crook had even instructed that an outdoor pen be constructed using telegraph poles to hopefully make confinement less galling to them than if everyone was just thrown into the guardhouse. And the reason I bring this up is because, as we'll see next week, most of the Cherokee assumed their families were going to be held at Fort Apache, overseen by the San Carlos Reservation. And Geronimo and others will make decisions based on that faulty assumption. To that point we need to now turn back to Chihuahua, who was, as I mentioned, now pretty unhinged and entirely dangerous following Chato's attack on his camp back in June. With his family captured, Chihuahua acted like a man with nothing to lose. Through July, he continued to raid and pillage, even joining with Nietzsche for a time. Sweeney notes that their strategy during the middle of summer 1885 seemed only to be avoiding the heart of the Sierra Madres, where the Americans and Mexicans were now swarming like angry ants. On July 20th, the Apaches struck an American mining camp, killing one man and wounding another before taking everything that wasn't nailed down. The same day, they assaulted two Mexican sheep drivers, killing one of them in the process. Then, when they were chased by soldiers for these attacks, Chihuahua's rearguard was able to surprise the Mexicans and kill two of them. The very next day, they killed two more Mexicans while stealing their horses and cattle. So yeah, Chihuahua's cutting his own very bloody swath through the area. But here, Chihuahua split off from Nietzsche, who was heading toward the western slopes of the Sierra Madres, which is where Geronimo's captured wives knew him to be a couple weeks later. So while Nietzsche's heading that direction, Chihuahua did something unexpected. He and the 15 men with him turned north. On July 23rd, they actually entered back into Arizona northeast of Santa Cruz. This unexpected move actually had a purpose. Chihuahua may be a madman right now, but only because he had lost everything. His goal was to find a way to steal up to Fort Apache, where, like I said a moment ago, he erroneously believed his family was being held. This move was also a test of Crook's defenses, and to see if it was possible to get up to the White Mountains. Moving by night, Chihuahua and his company managed to find a sheltered spot in the Whetstone Mountains to temporarily camp. 
but their presence hadn't gone unnoticed. Part of that is because of the three lines of defense Crook had set up for just such an occasion, but also part of it was the fact that his group had killed a postal carrier and a Mexican just getting into the Whetstone Mountains. They soon found that soldiers were everywhere in southern Arizona and that two troops of cavalry were specifically on their tail right now. These troops were following Chihuahua's trail and at points were just a matter of hours behind the Apache. In fact, Chihuahua and his company had to abandon roughly 40 of their recently stolen horses just to keep ahead of the military. Finally, though, the chief could see that there was just no opportunity for him to get to his desired destination. So he eventually turned his men around and headed back down into Mexico. He didn't realize that he had actually been a lot closer to his family than he thought, with them being over at Fort Bowie and not up at Fort Apache. That brings all our main players up to mid-August 1885, and so far the conflict is not going that well for anyone. The U.S. Army had no definitive victories that they could point to after two months of hard campaigning, as the fighting Apache kept managing to slip away. At the same time, the Chiricahua were watching as their supplies and families were just being taken at every turn, and the scouts and the soldiers they feared so much were pushing them more and more into the wilds of Mexico. So join me next week as the campaign goes into late summer and early autumn, and Geronimo decides that he too wants to take a stab at invading Arizona once again. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.